in Ephesians chapter 4 today. We were off last week because of the Thanksgiving holiday, but we are back and we are in the middle of a section in which Paul is speaking of the church and praying for unity within the body of Christ. So we're going to go ahead and read through Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, and we're going to go through verse 6, and then we'll come back and unpack the rest of this. Now, some of this will be a bit of a review since it's been a couple of weeks since we were together, and one idea flows into the next, so we just need to refresh our memories as to where we were. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul um, had been talking about living a life worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And we talked at great length about what that means, just as in the sense that you're in, a, in combat with a worthy opponent, that is to say an opponent worthy of your steel, worthy of your ability. Paul says he wants us to live lives worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And what is our calling? Well, it's a very high calling. It is the calling to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ in the world. It is to be salt and light in a broken and fallen culture. And Paul wants us to live a life worthy of that calling. But he also realizes that we are not to function as individuals. We are to function as a body. That's the image that Paul uses here. Now, there are many images that he uses for the church. He uses the image of a kingdom or a city-state. He uses the image later on in this epistle to the Ephesians of a marriage between a husband and a wife. But the one that he seems to like more than any other, not only here in Ephesians but elsewhere, is this image of a body, of the various parts of the body working together in concert with one another for a common purpose. And so one of the things that Paul prays for here in Ephesians chapter 4 says that the church may be successful in its ministry is that we might be unified. He says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now we talked about unity. Uh, unity is an important feature for the life of the church. And disunity is grievous to the Lord. In his great high priestly prayer in John's gospel, Jesus prayed that his disciples might be one as he and the Father were one. So he wants unity in the church. But you have to ask yourself the question, unity on the basis of what? Or what kind of unity? Is it unity at the sake of everything else? And it's pretty obvious from what Paul says here that that is not what he's talking about. Um, I think I pointed out to you when we met the last time that I had a great aunt uh, and a great uncle, my great aunt May. And um, she was just a wonderful lady. I don't know, how many of you have seen the, the movie Auntie Mame? Well, my Aunt May was just like Auntie Mame. She was just absolutely wonderful. But my uncle was an old grouch. I mean, he, he just really was. He was a curmudgeon. And it's a wonder that she didn't kill him at some point, to be perfectly honest with you. But they lived together, and um, they lived together for over 50 years. But they probably didn't have a marriage for about 48 of those 50 years in the sense that they lived together, but they lived in different parts of the house. They lived different lives. She took care of cooking the meals and maintaining the house for him, and he paid the bills, but they did absolutely nothing together. They had two separate lives. There was no real unity 
And so you can have that kind of a facade, or you can have true unity. And Paul says there are times in the body of Christ when all we have is the facade. We, we come to church on Sunday, but we're really not unified in terms of our care for one another, and we're not unified in terms of our mission in the world. And so one of the things that he prays for is that it wouldn't just be unity in word only, it would be unity in fact, true unity. And then he lays out for us the basis of this unity. What does unity in the Spirit, because that's what it's really all about, we are called to be one, what does this unity of the Spirit look like? And the first thing Paul says is that you are, there is one body. He says there's only one body. And of course, when he refers to the body here, he's referring to the church. He says there's really only one church. Now, we have many different denominations. Uh, that's one of the things that you can't help but miss if you live in Charleston for very long, is that there is a church practically on every corner, and they are all different kinds of denominations. You've got the Catholics, you've got the, the French Huguenots, you've got the Anglicans, you've got Episcopalians over there, you've got Baptists, you've got Lutherans, you've got Methodists, you name it. There's a church on every corner, and there are various different denominations. But Paul makes it very clear in truth, in God's eyes, there's only one true church. And that's what we profess a belief in every Sunday when we say the creed. We say we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. One church, it's holy. Why? Because it has been set apart by God. It has been purchased at the price of Christ's own blood. So it's holy. It's Catholic. Catholic here is not a reference to Roman Catholicism. It is universal. That's what the word means. Catholic means universal. So there is a Catholic church that is universal, and it is finally what? It is apostolic. That is to say, it is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So Paul says the reason why there has to be unity in the body is because ultimately there's only one true church. There may be various different denominations, but there's one true church. Rest assured, Methodists are going to get into the kingdom of God, at least some of them. The same is probably true of uh, Baptists and Lutherans and, and any number of Christian denominations. So that's what Paul is talking about. He says there is one body. And we talked about the distinction between the visible and the invisible church. There is the visible church, those people that show up week in and week out for worship services on Sunday. But there is also the invisible church. And that is those who have actually come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. It is possible to be a part of the visible worshiping community and still not be part of the true Catholic Church. You only become a member of the Catholic Church if you're a member of God's family, and that happens by grace and by adoption. So Paul says there is one body, and the body is one. It has one common purpose. He goes on to say there is one spirit. The reason there's one body is because the Holy Spirit does the same work in all people. In other words, the job of the Holy Spirit is the job of conversion. You realize that each person of the Trinity has a role to play in our salvation. God the Father is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He's the one that made us in his image. And he's the one that sent Jesus Christ into this world. Jesus' role, of course, is to die upon the cross as an atoning sacrifice for our sins and to rise again for our justification. And what is the role of the Holy Spirit? The role of the Holy Spirit is a spotlight ministry. He is to shine the light on Jesus Christ. And the other part of his ministry is he is the one who is the Lord and the giver of life. That is to say, it is his job to make us alive when we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins. And that's why Jesus said, you have to be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. And he says, born of the Spirit. 
because it is the work of the Holy Spirit to make us alive, to give us the eyes to see, the ears to hear, the minds to comprehend, and the hearts to receive the message of the gospel. So people may have different conversion stories. Everybody's story is a little different. That's one of the reasons why testimonies can be a very powerful thing. Well, those of you who were here for the Life Resources event that was just a, about a month ago had an opportunity to hear Ryan Street's testimony. Let me tell you, if you've never heard Ryan Street's testimony, we're going to have to get him up here and let him tell his testimony. It is the most powerful story. I, I sat there and wept. I mean, it was an amazing story. He has a wonderful story to tell. And it's one of the reasons why I think he's so humble and yet so effective in the work that he does with our young people and with, with the college-age students. But his story of conversion is different from my story of conversion. And my story of conversion is different from Andrew's. And Andrew's is a little bit different from Brian's and so forth. But what is interesting is that while our stories are different, the work that the Holy Spirit does in the life of a believer is the same. His role is regeneration, that is to make us alive again. It is he that plants faith in our lives, that ability to trust Christ. Did you realize that faith is not a work, it is a gift? The New Testament does not describe work as a gift. You have faith, and if you have faith, you get salvation. Now, we've already talked about it. Paul says you're dead in your trespasses and in your sins. If you're dead in your trespasses and in your sins, you have nothing to offer. So what the Holy Spirit does is he makes us alive and then he gives us faith. Faith does not lead to salvation. Here's the interesting thing. Regeneration, new birth, leads to faith. Faith is actually the fruit of regeneration. It's the result of being made alive again. And by virtue of being made alive again, we place our faith in Christ. The work of the Holy Spirit is also sanctification. He not only makes us alive, gives us the gift of faith so that we place our trust in Christ, but then he takes up residence in our lives and he begins the process of transforming us, changing us, making us into the very thing that we have been declared to be, righteous people. Now this is what we call the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, you will know them by their fruit. And what is the fruit of the Spirit? Well, you know it, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the fruits of the Spirit. That is what God begins to produce in the lives of his people, and that is the evidence that we are, in fact, in Christ. So Paul says there has to be unity in the body of Christ. Why? Because there's only one church, there's only one body. And it's the same Spirit who does the same work in every individual. If you're a Christian, you've experienced or are experiencing all of those things. If you're a Christian, you have to be born again. Now, that's not my language. Sometimes we Anglicans are a little uncomfortable with that born-again language. Oh, those born-again Christians. I want you to understand there is no other variety of Christian than the born-again type. It's as simple as that. And that's because that's what Jesus said. You must be born again is what he told Nicodemus. So to be born again... If you have been born again, then you have faith. You have placed your trust in Jesus Christ. And God is doing a work in you. You are growing in grace. Now, you should begin to see fruit, some of those fruits, some of that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That should be evident in your life. And what is particularly interesting is that when it is spoken of in the New Testament as the fruit of the Spirit, it is not spoken of as the fruits of the Spirit. In other words, it's not a case where you get a little bit of those things. Well... You get the love, I get the joy. <laughs> you get the peace, I get the patience. 
you get the kindness, I get the goodness. It's nothing like that. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It is a clump of grapes. So the Holy Spirit produces all of those things in our lives in varying degrees. And the only question that you need to ask when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit is this. Am I seeing any of it? The question is not, do I have a lot of it? The question is, do you have it? Do you have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Do you see yourself growing in those things? Now, rest assured, it is the work of the vineyard, the vineyard keeper. It, it is the work of the vine dresser to prune you so that you produce more fruit. But if you're a believer, all of those things should, in varying degrees and amounts, be present in your life. So Paul goes on to say, because there's one body and one spirit who does the same work, we also have one hope. And we ask the question, well, what exactly is hope? Because hope is a word that has fallen on hard times in our culture. When we think of hope, we sort of think of hope against hope. Wishful thinking is what we have a tendency to think of. But when the New Testament speaks of hope, it's talking about a sure and certain hope. It's talking about something that is a guarantee, it just hasn't come to pass yet. It's God's pledge to us. In the same way that you ask a young woman to marry you, and you give her a pledge of your love, you give her a diamond ring, and she accepts that. You are now proposed, you proposed and you are now what? Engaged. And you have a hope, a sure, and we hope certain hope, that she's going to meet you at the altar at some point in the future. Well, that's the same with God. God gives us the promise, the promise of eternal life. It's something that we haven't experienced yet, but it is something that we can absolutely be confident in. Why? Because it is God who's given us his word. See, the problem with a young woman giving you her word that she's going to meet you is that she can break that. She can, she can break off the engagement. I was actually engaged before I met Kristen. I dated a girl for about six years, and uh, I proposed to her. And in my last year of seminary, she decided that she didn't think she wanted to be married to a priest. So she gave me a choice. Well, it's pretty obvious by the fact that I'm standing here which, which one I took. And that's only because God had something better in mind, absolutely. But you see, she broke her word. And she sent back the ring, by the way. And I went out and bought a Civil War relic with it. You know, it's one of the <laughs> consolation, consolation. Helped get over the grief. But you see, when it's God, we have an absolute certainty, don't we? We have an absolute certainty because he's given us his word. So this is what Paul is talking about when he talks about the unity. This is what the church should be like. We, we recognize that that which we hold in common is so much greater than all of our differences. Oh, it may be true that you come from the south, and it may be true that I come from the north. And there are differences between those two parts of the country. It may be that you come from an illustrious background, and my people were all a bunch of thieves and robbers. But the reality is, is that we are part of the one church. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has done the same work in each and every one of us. And he's producing in us the same fruit. And furthermore, we have the same hope. So we better get along with each other here and now because we're going to spend eternity together when Christ returns in glory. So there is one body, one spirit, one hope. Now here's where we pick up today. One Lord. 
One Lord. One Lord, Jesus Christ. Now why I say one Lord? Because it is not just that Jesus Christ is our Savior. It is true, Jesus Christ came into this world to redeem us from the power of sin and death. But Jesus Christ also came to be what? The Lord of our life. You don't get the Savior part of Jesus and not the Lord part. Do you understand that? He is the Savior to save you, but He is the Lord to command your life. And if you are a Christian, then you have the same Lord as any other Christian. The same commander-in-chief who gives the same orders to his army. That's one of the remarkable things about the book of Acts, and particularly the story of the church in Antioch. If you keep your finger there in Ephesians and you turn back for just a moment to Acts chapter 13, I always describe this as the beginning of the missionary era. Some might say, well, the missionary era began when the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles on Pentecost and empowered them to go out and be Christ's witnesses. And that's true. But one of the things you'll notice in the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts is that the early apostles only shared their faith as the opportunities presented themselves, which is to say they were reactive. But when you get to Acts chapter 13, for the first time in the history of the church, they are proactive. We're told that the Holy Spirit spoke to this community, this particular community, not the church in Jerusalem, incidentally, but the church in Antioch, Antioch in Syria. There were two Antiochs in the ancient world, Pisidian Antioch and Syrian Antioch. This is Syrian Antioch. And we're told that the Holy Spirit spoke to this particular church and said, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas to the work to which I have called them. The elders laid their hands on these two men and sent them off, and Paul went out on his first missionary journey. And the Greco-Roman world was evangelized as a result. And you and I, unless you have Jewish heritage in your background, you and I are here today as a result of that. So we owe a debt of gratitude to the church in Acts chapter 13, the church in Syria. Now what's remarkable about this church is that it was a hodgepodge. Just in the first three verses, you can see so much about this church. We read, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. That's something very interesting. We don't have time to go into it other than to say that the first people mentioned are preachers and teachers. The kind of church that changes the world is a church that places a priority on preaching and teaching. Any church that does not place a priority on preaching and teaching, no matter what else it has, will never be a church that will change the world. It's as simple as that. Church that had prophets and teachers. But then, this is the part that I want to focus on today, it goes on to list who those preachers and teachers were. And we learn a great deal just by listening to their names. We're told there was Barnabas. Who is Barnabas? Well, you meet him earlier in the book of Acts. He was Jew. He was a Jew. He was not a Jew from Jerusalem, however. He was from Cyprus. Now, Jews tended to um, love other Jews better than they loved Gentiles. But they loved Jews who were from Jerusalem more than they loved Jews from off. So this man is Jewish, but he's from off. But he was a man who had a great concern for the Jews in Jerusalem who were suffering. It was a poor church in those days. And so we're told that he went and he sold an expensive piece of property. And he came and he brought the proceeds to the apostles for the relief of the suffering. This is a man that didn't have to do that, but he did it. He sold property in his homeland, and he came and he gave the proceeds for the relief of others. Why? Because there's one body. And one member of the body cannot say to the other, I have no need of you. 
That's why he did it. And so they renamed him. His real name was Joseph. But they called him Barnabas, which means a son of encouragement. So that's the first person that's mentioned in this church, a son of encouragement. He's got the gift of giving. He is generous. The next person mentioned is Simeon, who was called Niger. Now, you know what Niger means. It means black, so presumably this was a black man. There was Lucius of Cyrene. Uh, Lucius is a Latin name. And furthermore, we're told he was from Cyrene. Cyrene was one of the places where, after the attacks on the church in Jerusalem, people fled. Some went to Antioch, some went to Damascus, some went to Cyrene. This was a man from Cyrene, and he is Latin. Presumably, that means this man was a Gentile. So I want you to think about that, just those first three names. You've got a white Jew, or a Jew, working alongside a black man, and they're working alongside a Gentile. Now, in the first century, Jews and Gentiles had nothing to do with each other. Whites and blacks had a tendency to look down on each other. What's interesting is that these are all working together. The next person mentioned is Manaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch. So this is a man who has been raised in the royal household. This is an aristocrat working alongside commoners. And then finally, we're told there's this man by the name of Saul. We all know who he was, a religious zealot who was out persecuting the church, and he goes out on the road to Damascus, and he has a born-again experience. And so you got blacks and whites, Jews and Gentiles, people of high estate and low estate, people who've had dramatic conversions, people who've sort of just been coming along by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit in just a gentle sort of way. And yet what's fascinating is that they are all working together. Why? Because there is one Lord. There is one Lord. There's one Lord, Paul says, going back now to Ephesians, and one faith. Now, faith can be used in two ways. It can be subjective. In other words, when somebody says, tell me, are you a Christian? And you then go on to tell them the story of your conversion. You tell them the story of your faith. Let me tell you about my faith in Jesus Christ. And faith can be used in a subjective sense. But when Paul uses it here in Ephesians chapter 4, he's using it in the objective sense. He's saying there is one faith, a true faith. That's what we profess our belief in every single Sunday when we say the creed. That's the faith of the church. Do you understand that you cannot be a Christian? It doesn't matter what you say. You cannot be a Christian if you cannot say the words of the creed without crossing your finger. The creed is the bare minimum of what it takes to be a Christian. And what do we say in the creed? I believe in God the Father, the Almighty, the Creator of the heavens and the earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. See, those are the things that are the bare minimum that must be believed. There are other things on top of that, but you have to at least believe that. That is the faith, the holy Catholic faith. And that's the way Paul uses the word faith here. He says there's really only one faith. And you can't claim to be, this is one of the reasons why Jehovah's Witnesses are not Christians. This is the reason why Mormons are not Christians. Now, mind you, I'm not saying they're not nice people. I'll be honest with you. If you want good neighbors, you want Mormons as your neighbors. They're generally very nice people. But they're not Christians. Why? Because they do not subscribe to the faith. I had a lady in Buford who once came to me and she said, 
I've got a son-in-law, and he's Jewish, and he's the best Christian I know. (laughs) Now, I understood exactly what she meant by that. I knew what she meant by that. He was nicer than many of the believers that she knew. Well, shame on the believers then. But he was not the best Christian she knew. Why? Because he didn't subscribe to the one faith. The way Paul describes it to his young friend Timothy, uh, you all know that when Paul wrote his second letter to Timothy, it was the last letter, incidentally, that Paul wrote prior to his martyrdom in Rome. This last letter, he was passing the responsibility of leading the church on to his young protege, Timothy. And one of the things that he tells Timothy is he says, guard the good deposit. The Greek word philoso is an interesting word. It means to guard vigilantly as though you're on the watchtower, watching the approach of the enemy. That's what he says to Timothy. Your job, I'm leaving, I'm departing, I'm passing on my apostolic Episcopal ministry, small e, to you. And in so doing, your job is to guard the good deposit. Guard the good deposit. Guard the faith. That's what's under attack, you see, in our day and age. We live in such a subjective culture, people think that they can redefine anything. You can redefine gender. Well, I'm a male today, but I think I'll be a woman tomorrow. Now, we we laugh about this, but this is serious. This is the world in which we're living. People want to do precisely the same thing when it comes to the faith. I remember having a conversation with a seminarian when I was at Virginia Seminary, and we were sitting in the common room of our dorm, We had just come from chapel, and we're sitting there before the beginning of classes, and we start to talk about the homily that we'd heard that day, and it became very apparent to me that he did not believe in the resurrection. You know, sort of think that that was a prerequisite for somebody that wanted to be a priest, but (laughs) not necessarily. And he didn't. He didn't believe in the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so we get into it. I was scrappy even then. So we're, we're, we're going back and forth about this. And at some point, he said, you know, I, I, I just believe that the spirit of Jesus rose in the hearts of his disciples. I said, no, just wait a minute. I said, we just sat next to each other in chapel. We both stood and said the words of the Apostles' Creed in morning prayer. And you said, you believe that he rose again from the dead. Now, he said, what you mean by those words and what I mean by those words are two different things. See, that, that's how it works in our culture. Well, I know what you mean by that, but I'm going to mean something very different by it. And we do have to acknowledge the fact that words change in their meaning. I mean, let's let's face it. The 1890s were called the gay 90s. So were the 1990s. But they didn't mean precisely the same thing. So we recognize that words sometimes do change in their meaning. But sometimes what we do is we simply redefine them for whatever reason. Whatever reason we want. Well, you see, you can't redefine the faith because there's only one faith. And it's founded upon Jesus Christ. It's the one holy Catholic and apostolic faith built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And you have to subscribe to that in order to be a believer. If you do, you are. And there is one baptism, he goes on to say. This is the unity that we see in the life of the church, you see. There's one body. The body is one. There's one hope in God's call to us. There is one Lord, there's one faith, and there's one baptism. We have a baptism in church today, and those are the very words we're going to use. They come right out of Ephesians. One baptism. Now, when it talks about baptism here, it is not talking about the mode of baptism. 
One baptism. That's what the Baptists say. There's only one, and it's by immersion. And you sprinklers, that just doesn't count. <laughs> when the New Testament talks about baptism, it's ta talking about mode of baptism. It's talking about the meaning of baptism. And what is the meaning of baptism? Well, it is the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament rite of circumcision. In other words, when a child, a male child, reached the age of a week old, he would be taken up to the temple and he would be circumcised. And that was the Jewish rite which said that we are setting him apart. He's got an outward and visible mark of an inward, we hope, an inward and spiritual transformation. Now, what you did when that child was circumcised is that you made a promise that you were going to raise that child to know and to love the things of the Jewish faith. The hope is that at some later point, he would own that for himself. And they have a ceremony for this, when they become a man, a bar mitzvah. The same thing is true in Christianity for those of us who baptize infants. We baptize them, that water is the outward and visible sign what does it mean? Well, it signifies two things. One, the washing away of sin. Second of all, it signifies death and resurrection because in the early church it was done by immersion. It was. And incidentally, even in the Greek Orthodox Church today, they still immerse babies. It symbolizes death and resurrection. So that's the first thing baptism represents, death and resurrection. It's an outward and visible sign. The second thing it does is that it identifies us with Jesus Christ. It identifies us with his death and his resurrection, specifically. We were dead, we've been raised. He was dead, we are now in Christ. So it is the same thing as the Old Testament rite of circumcision. But the expectation is that one day, the promises and the vows that have been made on your behalf as an infant by your parents and your godparents, you will own for yourself. I want you to notice in the right today, there is a section on page 301 called the presentation and the examination of the candidates. And what happens is there are a whole series of questions and answers that are asked and given. Do you turn to Jesus Christ and accept him as your savior? Do you promise to follow and obey him as your Lord? Well, what is interesting is that's called the presentation and examination of the candidate. The candidate is what? The baby. Now, how many answers do you think that baby's going to give today? None. Who answers on behalf of the baby? The parents and the godparents. And what are godparents? They're not the people that take care of your child in the event that you're in a car crash and all of that. No, they are a parent in God. They are someone whose responsibility it is to assist you in raising this child in the faith. So they make those promises on your behalf. But everybody who had their Jewish son circumcised knew that there was always the possibility that he might grow up and reject that faith one day. Well, there's always the possibility that your child will reject the faith. But the hope is that by raising them to know and to love the things of the Lord, there will come a time where they will own that for themselves, when they will make a conscious decision. And just as it's a bar mitzvah in the Jewish tradition, it's a what in our tradition? Confirmation, exactly. So there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. The baptism doesn't save. I want you to understand that. We use the language of being born again in the baptismal service. And it's because it signifies that death 
and rebirth. But obviously, it doesn't just happen. The theologians say it doesn't happen ex opera operato, by the thing itself. If that were the case, we would just line everybody up and hose them down. <laughs> this is not about magic, my friends. This is about the grace of God. And so these sacraments are very, very important. But the hope is that one day they are going to own that faith for themselves. But that's what the baptism represents. It represents death to self, resurrection, and being united with Christ. Whether it's by immersion, whether it's by sprinkling, however it's done, that's what it represents. And so Paul is saying there should be unity in the body of Christ. Why? Because there is only one body. There's only one hope. There's only one calling. There's only one Lord. There's only one faith. There's only one real baptism. There's a water baptism, and then there's the baptism, of course, of the Holy Spirit, which comes with the new birth. And finally, he says, to top it all off, there's only one God. There's only one God and Father of all. This is the climax, of course, of Paul's argument. He's saying there can only be one body, one church, because there is only one God. You can almost imagine Paul saying, so why are you people fighting with each other? Because you see, that's what it's all about. Now, if you look at these various categories that Paul mentions here, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, it's almost the opposite of what we would expect. You'll notice that Paul starts with the work of the Holy Spirit, he goes on to the work of the Son, and then he comes at the very end to one God and Father of all. That's not normally the way we talk about it. We don't talk about the work of the Spirit, the work of Christ, and the work of the Father. We speak of the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul does it the opposite way. Why? It's just part of his argument. What Paul is doing is he is arguing from cause to effect. And it's important because Paul is emphasizing the Trinity here. He's emphasizing the fact that all three persons of the Godhead are engaged in the work of our salvation and the creation of the church. The first three of these, there is one body, one spirit, and one hope. What does that have to do? That centers on the work of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who makes us alive. He is the one who creates the church. He is the one who gives us the hope of everlasting life. The second three, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, centers on the Son. Jesus is the one Lord. It's faith in Jesus Christ that is the sign of our salvation. And the baptism that we experience is a baptism into His life. It is unity with Him. The third element deals with the God and Father of all. It centers on the Father. Now, Paul's major argument here is just this. The unity of God's work and person should be reflected in the church and its individual persons. If all three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are engaged in the work of your salvation and my salvation in bringing the church together, then the unity that we see evident in the Godhead should be evident in our lives as Christians today. And if it is not, then the church does not function as it was intended to do. So if you think that there are some people here at St. Philip's that you really don't like, let me encourage you to get to know them 
to spend time with them so that you can begin to work together in such a way that the unity that we have outwardly is evident and it is reflected to the world the same kind of unity that we see in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is one of the reasons why one of my favorite hymns in the entire hymnal, and coming from Pennsylvania to Charleston, South Carolina, you'll understand why this is one of my favorites. In Christ there is no east nor west. In Him, no south or north. I want you to hear that last part. But one great fellowship of love throughout the whole wide earth. In Him, true hearts everywhere, their high communion find. His service is the golden cord, close binding all mankind. Join hands then, brothers of the faith, whatever your race may be. Whoever my father as a son is, surely is kin to me. In Christ now meet both east and west, in him meet south and north. All Christly souls are one in him throughout the whole wide earth. And all God's people say, Amen. That's one of the things we need to pray for, isn't it? Unity in the life and the body of Christ, because there is safety in numbers and there is strength in numbers. And if we are unified in our purpose, if we recognize we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, we have one calling on our lives, one hope. We can just become a unity, a unified people. What a difference it would make. What a difference it would make in our individual lives. What a difference it would make in our corporate lives. What a difference it would make in terms of our mission in the city of Charleston and beyond. That's why Paul prays for unity. May it be our prayer as well. Next week, when we come back, if the Lord doesn't return again, and don't laugh about that because that's what the sermon is all about today, we're going to talk about dividing the spoils. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one hope, one God, one call and, and by God to each and every one of us. But while there is great unity, Paul does acknowledge the fact that there is diversity. There is unity, but that doesn't mean that every single part of the body is exactly the same. There is a unity that is complemented by a form of diversity. And we'll take a look at that next week. We'll take a look at spiritual gifts. And if you're a Christian, you've got one. Every Christian has at least one spiritual gift. And whatever your gift, you are to use that for the body. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks and praise for the body of Christ, for the church. It is true, sometimes the church seems to be assailed, not only from the outside, but sometimes it is rent by division inwardly. But Father, we know that you are the one who can bring us and bind us all together. We know that Jesus Christ came to bring peace to this world, to be the Prince of Peace, to make peace between a warring humanity and a holy and righteous God. But then, having made peace, he passes on to us that peace of God which passes human understanding, that peace which should abide in the body of Christ in such a way that we have a true unity and an ability to go out and make a difference in the world. Bring that unity by the grace of your Holy Spirit here. Settle your Holy Spirit upon this congregation that we may be a people united, united in love and truth and making a profound difference for the sake of him, his Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, Lord of all. Amen.